All right, well, good morning, Shore Church. If you have your Bibles, go ahead, open up to Amos chapter four. Let me introduce myself. My name is Jordan. I'm the director of youth here at the Shore. Really excited to dive into this text this morning um, in what would normally be a really special week for a lot of you teens out there, even a lot of adults. A lot of you would be at summer camp right now, typically. You'd be at Keats or Anvil, and, and that holds a special place in my heart, spending almost 20 summers at summer camp. Um, so I want to start off by giving you a little summer cabin nostalgia. Uh, so I have a, a photo here, if you want to throw that up for me, of when I was in my early or so 20s, a crew of myself and a couple other male staff at Keats, we uh, took a boat, we didn't steal it, we, we boarded a boat, had a wakeboard day, and we went off behind Gambier Island, and we found this massive, about 100 or so foot cliff, and we thought it would be a good idea to jump off of it, you know, as 20-year-old guys would do. Now, the interesting thing about this cliff, if you just want to hit the next slide here, if you look really carefully, you can kind of see a person there. That's me. You can kind of see me there. The interesting thing about this cliff is you'll notice that there's a lot of rocks down here. And so you really had to commit to it and jump out in order to clear those rocks. And, and I remember standing on top of that cliff and there was probably like a 15 foot runway that was just flat. And then the last six or so feet was a steep decline. Okay. So once you hit that decline, you were going. You had no choice. So I remember psyching myself up and running that flat spot, but then just like bailing at the last second before I hit that decline. I remember having to do that a few times. But what I realized is when you hit that decline, you better go or you're gonna not make it over those rocks, okay? It's almost like the, it was the point of no return. When you get to that downslope, there's no getting out of it. You're done, you're going over the cliff. And in our text in Amos this morning, we're going to talk about a point of no return in our lives that many of us might be heading to. And God's calling us to get off of that path, bail out while you can. Okay. We're, we're even going to see God really emphasize this in ver at the end of verse six, verse eight, eight, verse nine, verse 11. He says, you have not yet returned to me. He's calling for urgency to return to him, to get off that path of destruction and run to him. God is going to tell us in Amos 4 that you are very close to passing that point of no return where you will no longer hear my voice, no longer hear my call, and you're going to fall off the cliff. And to continue to ignore the call of God and the path he has for you will eventually lead you to this point of no return where you will not return to him. It's a scary place to be. And so because the Bible is the word of God and God is outside of time, meaning that the past, the present, the future isn't just something that he knows about, but it's somewhere that he is, that means the word of God is always timely. So what God is saying to these people in Northern Israel in 8th century BC is relevant to us today as well. What you seek as of first importance, how you view other people, how you conduct business, areas you, you refuse to believe God is sovereign over, how you treat your family, what your hope is truly in, whatever it may be, God is calling you again and again and again to get off of that road, turn back to him and repent. And if that's you, 
then what God is saying to us through Amos this morning is that you are fast approaching that cliff, fast approaching a crossroads in your life that if you do not address it, you're gonna pass a point of no return, okay? And this can be true, not just for us as individuals, but as a church community, as a city, as a nation. And this is what seems to be happening all around the world right now in regards to the point of no return of racial injustice. It seems like we've been heading towards this cliff where things have gotten so out of control, but all of a sudden people have seen enough and they're taking a stand and they're bailing from that path to create a new one. Like, I don't know if you realize this, but what's happening around the world, the issues around the world, aren't just things that are happening in other places. They're happening here. I don't know if, you, if many of you saw the interview that Shore Youth did with my friend Charles talking about racism. Uh, Charles is a black man who grew up in North Vancouver and he tells stories about the racism he experienced at the same schools your kids go to, sadly churches all over the North Shore. He told one story in particular that stood out when him and three of his other friends who were all white boys, after school one day, they wanted to get a head start on a school project, right? Good kids. So the four of them went to a local dollar store to get like poster boards, tape, you know, whatever you need for a project. And they all walked into the dollar store. All four of them had their backpacks on. They came from school. The three white kids walked in, whatever, no problem. Charles walks in. The store clerk says, hey, you got to leave your bag here with me. And he's like, what? Why? Like, they're going in. And the guy says, hey, it's nothing personal, man. How is that not personal? Right? Now imagine that's your son or daughter. That's your husband or wife, your friend, your brother, someone you know getting treated unjustly because of the color of their skin. That is unacceptable and that has to stop. And we're seeing movements towards that direction right now. But, but the problem is racial injustice, discrimination has been taking place for hundreds and thousands of years. And so let's take where I'm standing right now as the standard that God would have for us. God says, hey, love your brother as yourself, no matter what, unconditionally, no matter what anyone looks like, you are all equals. That's where we should be. Because of the hundreds and thousands of years of racial injustice, we're not here. We're currently way back here, nowhere close to where we should be. And so while we might have many great social media posts or great speeches going along right now, none of those are going to be enough to help us jump all the way back there, though I believe they'll help. How we're going to start clawing our way back there is going to be in each of our day-to-day -day grinds. It's going to be the situations that we're in where we say enough is enough when we're sitting somewhere in a circle of people and, and someone says something discriminatory or racist and we cannot be silent anymore and we say, hey, that's unloving, that's racist, and that's unacceptable. We begin to do that. Slowly, we can start to creep our way back closer and closer. And hey, 
we might not see it in our lifetime, us back to where we should be. But if we dig our heels in now, especially as the church and are the forerunners of this, and we start to love like Jesus has loved us, maybe our children will be in a place where we're a little bit closer. Our children's children will be a little bit closer. Our children's children's children, maybe they'll get to see things as they were designed to be. And, and this is one of the reasons why I love my job working with youth because we're seeing a huge uproar of Generation Z and, and younger millennials. I know it's not just them, but primarily them who are saying just because the world has been this way for so long doesn't mean it needs to continue that way, right? Like forget your traditions. If this is how it's always been done, we're not gonna stand for that anymore. We want change right now. And I applaud that and I wanna join in with them and we should as well. That's how we're gonna claw back, invade the darkness with light and be where God would have us to be. 1 John 4 says we love because he first loved us. If anyone says I love God and hates his brother, he is a liar. He who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. And this commandment we have from him Whoever loves God must also love his brother. And so we got to fight for this. We love because Jesus loved first. Let's invade the world with that love. Okay, so let's, let's get into Amos 4 here. We'll, we'll hit on this a little bit more. But Amos 4, let's go ahead and read that. This is a reading from Amos 4. Hear this word, you cows of Bashan on Mount Samaria, you women who oppress the poor and crush the needy, and say to your husbands, bring us some drinks. The sovereign Lord has sworn by his holiness. The time will surely come when you will be taken away with hooks, the last of you with fish hooks. You will each go straight out through breaches in the wall, and you will be cast out towards Harmon, declares the Lord. Go to Bethel and sin. Go to Jigal and sin yet more. Bring your sacrifices every morning, your tithes every three years. Burn leavened bread as a thank offering and brag about your free will offerings. Boast about them, you Israelites, for this is what you love to do, declares the sovereign Lord. I gave you empty stomachs in every city and lack of bread in every town, yet you have not returned to me, declares the Lord. I have also withheld rain from you when the harvest was still three months away. I sent rain on one town, but withheld it from another. One field had rain, another had none and dried up. People staggered from town to town for water, but did not get enough to drink. Yet you have not returned to me, declares the Lord. Many times I struck your gardens and vineyards, destroying them with blight and mildew. Locusts devoured your fig and olive trees, yet you have not returned to me, declares the Lord. I sent plagues among you, as I did to Egypt. I killed your young men with the sword, along with your captured horses. I filled your nostrils with the stench of your camps, yet you have not returned to me, declares the Lord. I overthrew some of you, as I overthrew Sodom and Gomorrah. You were like a burning stick snatched from the fire, Yet you have not returned to me, declares the Lord. 
Therefore, this is what I will do to you, Israel. And because I will do this to you, Israel, prepare to meet your God. He who forms the mountains, who created the wind, and who reveals his thoughts to mankind, who turns dawn to darkness and treads on the height of the earth. The Lord God Almighty is his name. Okay, so in Amos 4, it starts off in the first three verses talking to a specific group of people, and that's women with great influence and power in their culture. And so our question as we go through these first three verses is how do you use your power and your influence, which we all have to certain degrees, all right? And so he starts off greeting these women in verse one with the same words that I use to greet my in-laws, okay? He says, hear this word, you cows of Bashan, okay? I'm just kidding. Who are on the mountain of Samaria, who oppress the poor, who crush the needy, who say to your husbands, bring that we may drink, all right? So Amos's opening words here are directed exclusively to this group of women of affluent and wealthy culture. As the kids would say, they got that drip, okay? It's like, it's like talking to a group of women who are on the real housewives of Northern Israel or selling the Israeli sunset. Anyone seen that show? Don't do it. So it doesn't seem that Amos is looking to make friends with his opening statement here. Like how many of you women would like it if a guy came up to you on the street and was like, hey, what's up cow? Moo moo, right? It's not gonna go over well. However, if you go into the original context of this phrase, it's actually not as bad as it would be culturally today. It's still not great, but it's not as bad. See, the city of Bashan it was a well-known place because of its fine pastures and thoroughbred cows. And these cows were pampered like we pamper many of our pets today, getting all, all the best food and treatments, and they were sold for incredibly high prices. They're, they were nurtured in a way that's actually kind of insane. And, and Amos says, ladies, you are just like the pampered cows of Bashan. And so here, he's making an effort to blatantly point out to them their idolatrous lives, their sinful ignorance, and their lack of compassion for the oppressed among them. And so what God is doing here is he is addressing a society and he is singling out these women, particularly women with great power and influence. Now, guys, just because he's speaking to women in this context, don't turn me off here because the things Amos points out in these women is very much a problem in men today, if not more. So God is telling Amos that you need to speak a word directly to these women so that they understand that the way they're using their influence and power will one day be called to judgment before me. And we know historically a few interesting things about these specific women, okay? One, it was fashionable for them and trendy, almost cool for them to brush off spirituality, right? To brush off a relationship with Jesus. And isn't that kind of fashionable today? Maybe not in the exact same way, but isn't that, isn't that something popular that people say like, hey, Jesus might be for you, but it's not for me. I'm more into like positive energy and good vibes and whatever my crystals tell me to do, you know, brushing off, following Jesus. 
Additionally, it was fashionable for them to be consumed with their bodies and not their souls. They, like the cows, love to pamper themselves. They divulge in fancy, expensive meals. They love, the scriptures say they made noises so that someone, and in this case, their husbands, would come running to them with drinks. It was fashionable for them to exalt their statuses, to puff themselves up, their sense of importance, elevate it by looking down on others in their society, especially those who serve them. They thought absolutely nothing of those who made their clothes, who brought the meals, and they would do everything they could to pay these people as little as possible so that they could create a larger gap between them so they look even better. And this, like, God is not happy about this. In the scriptures, the Lord doesn't swear on anything too often, but he does here in verse two, saying the Lord has sworn by his holiness. He's saying, this is so important that I swear by my very character that a time will come where I will intervene. We will meet and talk about your narcissistic, self-fulfilling lives, and I will make an example of you for future generations. God's saying there is no room in this world for a life based on the mantra of me first. It was also fashionable for them to be covered in jewelry to elevate their status. And God says, you want some jewelry? Okay, look what he says in verse two. The Lord has sworn by his holiness, behold, the days are coming upon you when they shall take you away with hooks. Even the last of you with fish hooks. So you're into expensive jewelry above everything else. God says, try these on. It's not pleasant, is it, this picture? Anyone else feel a little uncomfortable reading this? We, we cannot water down what God is saying here. He's saying you're consumed with comfort and luxury and security. Well, let me tell you, keep this up and you'll be thrown out of this life by a hook in your face. <sighs> and I know these are the types of texts that we would rather skip or not talk about, but we have to remember that all scripture is breathed out by God for correction, instruction, and righteousness. Therefore, there is no part of the Bible that is irrelevant to us. Everything that exists in it, even this, it exists for our understanding and our edification so that we might grow in grace and knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. And to attempt to ignore or downplay the severity of texts like this or to distance ourselves from the immediate application that took place in 8th century Israel, we cannot miss the relevance of this to our lives in 2020 on the North Shore. God says he is coming in judgment. Every time he sees greed, every time he sees materialism, self-indulgence, racial injustice. 
He says, this is all a detriment, a destroyer to your soul and not just yours, but all of those who are impacted by the way you are living. Every time that he sees such neglect passed on from generation to generation, from friend to friend, he says he is coming in judgment and you will meet about that. And so the challenge today then is to take the Bible Take Amos 4, take our point in history, our point in our neighborhood, in our families, in our workplace, our circles, our communities, and ask the Spirit of God if there is a point of application here for us. Is there a path that we are on that is heading towards the point of no return that God says bail from that? Some of you might have had something on your heart the moment we started this text. We must be relentless in our pursuit of God and get off that road before it leads us to the cliff. And look, this text is by no means meant to be a broad shot at women and their lifestyles, but rather it's a warning to all with influence and power, which is all of us to a certain degree. It's God saying, I have given you that influence, that power, that position for good. And when you use it for selfish ambition, he says, I will come in judgment. So how do you use your influence and power? We got to ask that. Verse four and five, we see what I just called people at play or religion as recreation as a game, right? Because people were playing this game of church and following God as some kind of game in order to elevate themselves. These people are not concerned with, with what God told them to do. Let me read this, Amos 4, 4 and 5. It says, Come to Bethel and transgress, to Gilgal and multiply transgression. Bring your sacrifices every morning, your tithes every three days. Offer a sacrifice of thanksgiving of that which is leavened and proclaim free will offerings. Publish them for so you love to do. O people of Israel declares the Lord God. I, I wish I had more time to get into the, the cultural context going on here. Um, but what we do know about these people is that they were, they were not at all concerned with what God would have for them, what God told them to do, what God said would lead them into ever increasing joy, but rather they were concerned with their own self image and their own self made religion that allowed them to do whatever they wanted. Right? Anyone ever been there before? Anyone doing that right now as you're hearing this? Like, like maybe you're listening to God's word in Amos and you're saying, that's not the God I follow coming in judgment. He would never tell me to do this or do that. I know what makes me happy. And so I'm going to continue to do that. That's making religion a game. Creating a God that fits your needs, your wants, your desires, and not following the God of the Bible. That's what these guys are doing in verses four and five. That's what their churches are teaching. And look, there's all kinds of false teachers playing this game, leading people astray so that they can gain more power, more money, more temporal satisfaction 
people who will avoid talking about things like the depravity and darkness of our sin and the fact that we are so wicked that someone had to die for us. They won't talk about that because that won't make them any money. Instead, they'll tell people that if, if, hey, if you just have enough faith and give a little bit more money, then you'll be healthy and you'll be wealthy and you'll be happy for all of your days. Sure, that is a lie and a false gospel. The only people who are getting wealthy from that are the people proclaiming that message. The Bible even says that this is going to happen. Let me, let me rapid fire some verses for you here. Matthew 24 says, For false Christs and false prophets will arise and perform great signs and wonders so as to lead astray, if possible, even the elect. Second Timothy, for the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching, but having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions. They will turn their ears away from the truth and turn aside to myths. Okay, so what's our response? Acts 20, pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for the church of God, which he obtained with his own blood. I know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock, and from among your own selves will arise men speaking twisted things to draw away the disciples after them. Second Peter, but false prophets also arose among the people, just as there will be false teachers among you who will secretly bring in destructive heresies, even denying the master who bought them, bringing upon themselves swift destruction. And many will follow their sensuality. And because of them, the way of truth will be blasphemed. And in their greed, they will exploit you with false words. Okay, so what happens next? First Timothy, if anyone teaches a different doctrine and does not agree with the sound words of our Lord Jesus Christ and the teaching that accords with godliness, he is puffed up with conceit and understands nothing. Couple more here. Second Corinthians, for if someone comes and proclaims another Jesus than the one we proclaimed, or if you receive a different spirit from the one you received, or if you accept a different gospel from the one you accepted, you put up with it readily enough. You deal with them. Romans 16, I appeal to you, brothers, to watch out for those who cause division and create obstacles contrary to the doctrine that you have been taught. Avoid them. For such persons do not serve our Lord Christ, but their own appetite. And by smooth talk and flattery, they deceive the hearts of the naive. First Thessalonians, do not quench the spirit. Do not despise prophecies. What do we do here? But test everything. Hold fast what is good. Abstain from every form of evil. And 1 John, again, what do we do? Beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God. For many false prophets have gone out into the world. And so we gotta be aware of what we're hearing, what we're saying, what we're allowing into our hearts. And because I love you, a few popular movements in the world right now that are growing at a rapid pace that I need you to be wary of, the NAR, New Apostolic Reformation, the Word of Faith movement, the New Age movement, 
Anyone that talks the kenosis theory and the prosperity gospel, like I already mentioned, which is all about, hey, you give your money, you're going to be healthy and wealthy. Everything's going to be okay. And again, the only people getting rich on that are those delivering the message. In fact, do a little Google search today and search for the highest paid pastors in the world. You're going to find the top of that list is loaded with people who preach the prosperity gospel. And we're not talking six-figure salaries. We're talking millions of dollars for the Kenneth Copelands of the world, the Benny Hins, the Joel Osteens. If you want to know where I am on that list, I'm somewhere down in the honorable mentions at the receiving votes. But just check it out. I challenge you to check it out. I challenge you to test everything that you hear. And again, another great resource, I recommend checking out the film, the documentary, American Gospel. Um, by God's grace, it's on Netflix, which is amazing because there's a lot of amazing solid Bible teaching men and women who proclaim the one true gospel for people to see. So I recommend checking that out. But look with me what uh, Albert Moeller says, who is the president of the Southern Baptist Theological Seminary. And he has a, actually has a really great podcast called The Briefing that I recommend checking out. Uh, he says this, he says, prosperity theology is a false gospel. Its message is unbiblical and its promises fail. God never assures his people of material abundance or physical health. Instead, Christians are promised the riches of Christ, the gift of eternal life, and the assurance of glory in the eternal presence of the living God. In the end, the biggest problem with prosperity theology is not that it promises too much, but that it promises far too little. The gospel of Jesus Christ offers salvation from sin, not a platform for earthly prosperity. While we should seek to understand what drives so many into this movement, we must never for a moment fail to see its message for what it is, a false and failed gospel. And so, so what do we do? Like, am I to study everything there is about all of these movements. I don't think that's what you should be doing primarily, though it's good to know. David Haneke, a pastor, he says, he says this. He says, the way you identify a counterfeit is by knowing the original. So immerse yourself in the word of God. Study the true thing. So when you see something that is contrary to the word of God, you'll be equipped to say that doesn't seem right. And then like we already read, we test everything. We test everything against the word of God. So the warning we're seeing here in Amos is when we begin to deny the word of God and what it says and create our own God, God says, I will come in judgment. And look, like, these people didn't care what Amos had to say at all. They didn't care that it was forbidden in their law to burn leavened bread as an offering, but that's what they're doing. They made up their own rules. Hey, whatever works for me is what I want to do. God said, don't burn it. I'm going to burn it. Who cares? Their obedience had been replaced with their own self-righteousness, their own self-innovation and redefinition of who God is. And anyone who dared to lovingly approach them and engage them 
and told them to repent and run back to God. They were just ignored, turned away. And, and doesn't that happen today as well? Like if someone has the boldness and love of Christ in them and decides to stand up and say, hey, I think you're off here. Look what the Bible says. You're, you're a little bit off. How often is the response like, hey, who do you think you are telling me what to do and judging me? Doesn't the Bible say, judge not lest you be judged? A verse which is famously proof text pulled out of the context of the rest of the chapter. Like, yes, it does say that. But have you read the rest of Matthew 7? He's talking about not judging one another in a, from a hypocritical point of view. So if I see you struggling with something that I also struggle with, I am to abstain from addressing you in that issue until I've dealt with it myself. But if I see something we just read, I'm called to deal with it. Lovingly deal with it because I care about you. Later on in Matthew 7, a few verses later, verse 15, it says, Beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. You will recognize them by their fruits. And as we read in 2 Corinthians, we're not just to ignore that, we're to deal with them. To call them out, to say, hey, the Bible says this, you're living contrary to it. And so religion as a game, as recreation, manipulating what the word of God says to fit our own desires, that's very much alive today. Hypocritical, unbiblical religious expressions happening all around us. And God says, I am coming in judgment. And what's interesting about the context in Amos here is the places that he mentions, Bethel and Gilgal, it's not like they're diminishing, dying, small churches. No, quite the opposite, similar to what we're seeing in the prosperity message right now. These churches are jammed full of people. They are jammed full. But the message going out was exactly what we read in 1 Timothy. It was people being told exactly what they want to hear, having their ears tickled, making them feel good about themselves, never calling out sin, never calling for a need for repentance. Why would they need to repent? Because they're all good, right? They got it figured out. Haven't you seen the religious acts and sacrifices? In fact, in verse five, it says that they would actually publish all of their good work so that everyone could see. And so it wasn't that people were not going to church. It's that going to church had lost all of its impact. It was meant to have. And sure, it breaks my heart. And I worry that so many around the world are attending churches, being influenced by churches, that are not fixating their eyes on the person and work of Jesus Christ. And I love you way too much to not tell you to test everything you take in. Is it rooted in the scriptures? Is it rooted in the person and work of Jesus Christ? You might be like, well, Jordan, like some of these churches, they have like thousands of people. They're growing at a, it's gotta be good, right? Okay. I just ask, that you would do your due diligence, okay? Don't base your opinions on what feels right right now in your heart, your emotion. Base it on the word of God. 
I implore you, if, you're, if you think I'm off here, do it on what I'm saying as well. Test what I'm saying. Test these scriptures that I gave you. And the best way to do that is to chase after Jesus above all else. And from there, you'll have a greater understanding of what is true and what is not. And so we got to ask ourselves this morning, why are you here? Why are you watching this right now? If you're a regular attendee, why do you do this week after week? Am I trying to get something for myself? Like God is some sort of genie that if I just show up and rub his lamp, he's going to give me exactly what I want. Are we here to improve our self image in some way? Are you in any way playing this game, religion as recreation? You got to ask yourself. And the good news is Jesus died for that. And you can repent of that today. And he will pull you away from that cliff in a second. Okay. Running out of time. So we're going to leave some on the table here. Let me jump to uh, what Alec Moidier says about this text. He says, words could not be plainer. And unless we wish to trim him down to the poor limits of a God nice enough to suit our emotions, small enough to fit within our logic, and a feet enough to leave room for our wills, we shall bow before the sovereign revealed in this passage and throughout the rest of the Bible. And look, I think I've spent a good amount of time on the fact that people all around the world are creating a trimmed down God who is nice enough to suit people's emotions, small enough to fit our logic, tolerable enough to allow us to do whatever we want or whatever feels right. And, and can I be honest with you? I felt the temptation to do that this morning. I felt Genesis 3, when the enemy tries to twist the words of God to better suit my needs and my desire to not offend anyone or speak too harshly. But here's the thing. If, if you have a child and he goes running off towards the street, are you just going to let him? No. Because you love them. And, and the street is dangerous. Well, this shore church, where these people are, how they're living in Amos 4 is a dangerous place to be. And I love you way too much to not do everything I can to lovingly pull you away from the street. The Bible also says that anyone who preaches the word of God will have to one day give an account before God on their preaching. And as fearful as I might be sometimes of maybe offending you or speaking too harshly, I would be far more terrified if I sugarcoated this message, diminish what it really said to make you feel better, and then had to stand before God and explain that one day. God's going to call us to repentance one more time in Amos 4.12, he says, Therefore, thus I will do to you, O Israel, because I will do this to you. And what does he say? Prepare to meet your God. 
prepare to meet your God. There's going to be a meeting that we all must face. Are you ready for that today? See, for Israel here, there was still time for them to repent and turn to the Lord in order to avert the impending judgment that was coming. But they never took his offer. They overlooked the mercy and grace that was on the table for them and instead chose a path of their own and jumped off that cliff. There's a meeting that we must face. But here's the good news about that meeting if you're in Jesus. We will be welcomed with mercy and grace. Because of Jesus' work on the cross, we will meet not an enemy, but a friend. God will say, hey, I know you've done this. I know you've used your influence for selfish ambition. You've treated people with injustice. You made following me some kind of game and you've manipulated what I've said to lead others astray. But that's what Jesus died for. Believe in him. and He will offer you repentance, forgiveness, the fullness of life you have been longing for. So I got to ask, will you get off that path that leads toward the point of no return? Let's pray. Jesus, we love you and we confess that we fall short in so many ways. And this morning, I just pray for my brothers and sisters that you would give them the boldness and the courage to get off whatever path they're on that's leading to their destruction and to run to you and repent because that's why you died. And so right now, Lord, I just pray that you would stir up the hearts of your people and just reveal to them anything that they're doing that is leading them away from you, that is hurting people around them, that they're passing on to another generation or another group of people. Help us use our positions of influence for you and your glory. Help us have boldness and courage like Jesus would if we're in situations where injustice is taking place. Help us lovingly engage in that and replace that darkness with your light. We need you, Jesus. We love you. So I pray that you would work in each of our hearts as we just do the difficult yet beautiful work of self-examination. And I just pray for the boldness and courage to repent this morning. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.